0: Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. For many of you, Pastor Tom Nicholas needs no introduction. He has preached from our pulpit many times over the years, and as many of you know, he served as senior pastor of our sister church in Ephrata for, I believe it was, 28 years until his retirement just last year, so that's a big change for them. He and Linda have remained in the Ephrata area, so we're very glad to have him bringing God's word to us this evening from the book of Exodus in our series. Tom, thank you. Good evening. Normally I would bring greetings from the church in Ephrata, but I can't do that anymore because I don't uh, represent them. But greetings in the name of Christ. It's good to be uh, with you, and we uh, think of your congregation often, and we pray for you, as I know you, you uh, do for the other uh, churches in our presbytery going to read this evening uh, from uh, portions of Exodus chapter 12. I'm reading from the old NIV that I think your former pastor used. Um, And uh, that's because we're old. We don't want to change translations after a certain point. But you can follow along in a pew Bible or if you have your own, you'd be welcome to do that. Exodus chapter 12. I'll begin in verses uh, 1 through 13 and then just a little bit more. Uh, Just context-wise, this is uh, the 10th plague on Egypt. Um, It will be the most destructive plague on Egypt as the Lord judges the Egyptians uh, and their gods. Uh, And yet, in the midst of this, he makes a provision. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, "'This month is to be for you the first month.'" The first month of your year, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each of his household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Don't eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, inner parts. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This is our key verse. Verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then in verse 24, he goes on um, and says, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants when you enter the land that the Lord will give you that he's promised. Observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does it mean? this ceremony, then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of Israel, the Israelites in Egypt, and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians, and then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded, Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead." This is God's word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, please? Father, take uh, this. these words, our uh, spiritual food for the evening, and we ask that you would nourish us in the grace of your gospel. We thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God. In his name we pray, amen. During World War II... Uh, destruction came quickly uh, from the air. Airplanes were the new weapon of warfare, had been used uh, just slightly in World War I, but they dominated the skies in World War II, and they come, uh, whether the Germans or the Allies, uh, and they drop their payload, and they could destroy an entire city. Uh, one of the favorite targets of low-flying aircraft were the trains, especially when the Allies, after D-Day, were coming down and freeing Paris, and the Germans were starting to pack up and leave and head back to the fatherland. Um, a train was an easy target, obviously, because it just it's on the tracks, can't go anywhere. Unless you come to a tunnel, you know, you could hide, the train could hide inside... Uh, the tunnel, and bombers would often patrol these uh, train lines um, as the uh, German troops were retreating. There was only one sign that might prevent an an airplane from bombing a train, and that would be if the sign of the Red Cross was on at least one of those cars in in the train. And often the allies, as they were moving in, um, they would do this so that they weren't giving uh, friendly fire uh, onto the, the trains. If a bomber were to swoop down and see the sign of the Red Cross visibly displayed on the top or the sides of that train, they were required by the conventions of war to pass over and take their destruction somewhere else. On the night of the Passover in Egypt, God had promised that destruction would come on the firstborn of the Egyptians, and we could say on the children of Israel if they didn't follow his commands. Uh, This is the tenth plague. It's the most destructive plague. And there is only one sign, one sign alone, that uh, could save an Israelite family huddled in their homes from the awful death that the Egyptians would be experiencing. And that was the sign of blood, the blood of a lamb, who had been slain, and that blood was to be sprinkled visibly on the doorposts of the home. We read in Exodus 12:13, the blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No destruction will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, within that verse, or maybe the five most important words in the Old Testament, or we could say in all of Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, bloodshed or blood sprinkled, whether in the holy place, holy of holies, um, or on this night, it always meant salvation. It meant that destruction, the wrath of God, would go elsewhere. And that's what is being commanded this night. But let me ask you this. Why blood? People, most of you are probably from a a believing or religious background. And um, we're so used to this that we, we almost don't think about it. We don't think about the mess it was. Like that lamb that was allowed to be in your house for four days and it became your favorite pet. Um, You know, they they felt that. The kids felt that. Um, It was messy. And we need to remind ourselves why blood is so important to God throughout the Old Testament that it be shed and offered or sprinkled with a sacrifice to Him. Cain offered fruit. Abel, his brother, offered the sacrifice, the shed blood of an animal. And we know by which God was pleased. It was Abel's. I'm sure that some of you wish it weren't so important to the Lord. Some of you, just the thought of blood makes you feel a little bit queasy. Um, my wife is that way. Don't just don't even talk about it. Um, She doesn't like to talk about blood. She doesn't give blood because she doesn't weigh enough. Um, None of us like to lose blood. And you certainly don't want to be seeing it a lot. God says, I want to see the blood. I want to see the blood. Why? Well, blood, uh, two sides really of the same thought. Blood symbolizes life. It's life. Blood really is our life. It carries oxygen and nourishment throughout our bodies. It fights disease that keeps us alive. It can be transfused to give life to other people. That's why the Bible says in various places the blood is the life. They weren't medical doctors, but they knew that. On the other side, blood also symbolized death. It symbolizes death when enough blood is shed. The shedding of blood is the shedding of life. It is the shedding of what is precious. Well, in the Scriptures, sin is so serious. It's considered so serious by our God that blood became the symbol of what God requires because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. He requires the, the taking of life for our rebellion against him. Hebrews 9.22, without blood and the shedding of it, there is no forgiveness of sins. We need to remember that this is, <clears throat> that in the Old Testament, God was willing to accept the blood of an animal substitute, except in the case of capital offenses. So in the Old Testament, it was the blood of the animals that was central to their relationship and their worship of God. It was always in the context of some blood being shed. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of a creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And whenever, you see, whenever the, the Israelites would meet with God or covenant with God, God, there would always be the presence of a sacrifice uh, and therefore blood. Hebrews 9, 7 but only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. So you see, that's why on the night of the Passover, God was willing to accept the blood of a lamb. It was a substitute, okay? The lamb died. The people of Israel didn't. And I want you to notice that there were two things that were were required of the Israelites on that night of the Passover there's a lot we could look at tonight, but uh, there's so many, so many images related to the cross and redemption. But tonight, just two things. Number one, the blood had to be shed, okay? Had to be sacrificed and eaten. Number two, it had to be displayed before God. The blood was shed and the blood was displayed. And God was faithful. We saw that in our story. God was faithful. And when the angel of death, as he's called in this passage, passed over, he passed by, it was a horrific night for the Egyptians. The wailing and the crying could be heard everywhere as the Egyptian families discovered that what Moses had said to Pharaoh was true. It came true. But there was no weeping in Israel. The Israelites were alive because of the, <clears throat> the blood of the Lamb. So the Passover really is a it's a night of judgment and grace. Okay? Both are present, really in the same moment. The judgment of God and the grace of God. Now, you may not have thought of it this way before, but... This is the direction I'm going. There is another Passover that is yet to come. There's another Passover coming. You might not have thought of that in that ter- those terms. We usually call it the second coming of Christ. His coming will be an event of grace and an event of wrath. It will be judgment and grace. We could just as easily call it the final Passover. The last Passover, Um, and I need to share with you just a few things about that last Passover so that you're aware. Uh, The last Passover is going to be a a lot worse than the first one. It's not just going to affect the Egyptians. It will. Uh, But it's going to affect every nation worldwide. It will affect the living and the dead, because all will be raised to face their judgment before Christ. There is accountability. Every continent, not just—it's uh, not just going to affect the firstborn. It is going to affect all people, all nations, everywhere. Women, children, old, young, rich and poor—no <clears throat> exceptions. And just as the Israelites were commanded to prepare. For the first Passover, in order to endure its coming, okay, so we need to be prepared for that Passover that is to come. The New Testament is filled with warnings. Peter says, uh, in First Peter chapter four, he says, "The end of all things is at hand." It's at hand. It's always at hand. We live in the time of when we're in the last time since Pentecost. And the end of all things is at hand. So how do you prepare? How do you get ready for it? Well, the steps are similar to the first Passover. Number one, if the final Passover is going to be a blessing to you instead of a curse then blood needs to be shed. If you're going to survive the coming of God in all of his glory and all of his holiness, then blood needs to be shed. And the good news that I have for you tonight, and most of you know it, is that God has already shed the blood that we need. Amen? Amen. Jesus came, the Son of God... He shed his blood. He is the Lamb of God. He is the substitute for all those, not just the Egyptians, but all of us, because we've all fallen short of his glory, and the wages of sin is death. Isn't that what Jesus was saying to his disciples at the Last Supper? At that Passover meal which looked back to the original Passover, but he took the Passover meal and he reinterpreted the whole Passover in terms of himself, looking ahead to what he was about to do. And so Jesus says to his disciples, this is my blood shed for you, a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. They didn't really know what he was talking about. Jesus was announcing to them that night as they prepared for Passover that he was the Lamb of God that they really needed, okay, to have the wrath of God turned aside. And Jesus on the cross, whether you've seen it this way before or not, the the wrath of God was poured out on him, the Son, and it turns aside the wrath of god there's a, a word for that in theology, but it's actually in your bibles in first john two two uh, where we're told that 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 Jesus, the righteous one of God, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and 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 the word there, it's it's propitiation it it, it means to Turn aside his wrath. So Jesus on the cross is really, he's the wrath bearer. He's allowing the, the father to slay, as it were, the true lamb that we needed so that our sins could be forgiven and only through his blood. It was a substitutionary atonement of the lamb that we all need. I grew up in the Philadelphia area, and um, I was privileged to uh, be there in you know high school, first year of college, and and uh, the Philadelphia Flyers won the Stanley Cup. They haven't won one since. In fact, I don't even follow the Flyers anymore because it was just I follow the Phillies, I follow the Eagles. Don't really have time to follow the flyers, and they've just been one disappointment after another. But watching hockey, I learned, no expert on it, that, you know, when you, get, when you commit a penalty, you go in the penalty box. Okay? It, 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 it's one for one. You, you do that, then you go here. And, and, but there's only one exception to that. If it's still played this way, if the goalie commits a penalty. If the goalie commits a penalty, someone has to go in the penalty box for him. Jesus went into the penalty box for his people. He took what we deserved. And he had committed no sin. He was as spotless as those lambs that they were asked to bring into their homes for four days before they were slaughtered. He was spotless. He was sinless. And gave himself... Uh, For us. Um, See, the, the blood of an animal just doesn't cut it for the final Passover. God accepted bulls, goats, lambs for a time. But it really was never capable of forgiveness. You know, if I committed a capital offense and I was sentenced by a judge... To die, and I appealed my death sentence, saying, "Well, how about my dog or my cat? I don't have a cat. Your cat. Um, If you live on a farm, you know, how about my cow or my horse? Why not shed their blood in my place?" The judge would laugh and say, "What are you? what, What is this?" And really, in many ways, it, was, it, it didn't forgive their sins. It just held the, the wrath and judgment of God in abatement until the real Lamb of God would come, the Lamb who was symbolized uh, in the Passover meal. Jesus made that sacrifice, and he shed his blood. And uh, so... Even there on the cross. See, the the cross is judgment. And yet, what is it for us? That same event is our grace, our forgiveness. There's one other thing, however, uh, a second step that's crucial if you're going to be ready for the final Passover. And this is really important. It involves you. Remember, the Israelites were not only told to shed the blood of the Lamb on the night of the Passover, that wasn't enough. An act of faith was required. I want you to take the blood, I want you to put it on those hyssop leaves, and I want you to spread it on the doorposts, you know, at the top and on the side. Some people see symbolism there of the cross itself, of, you know, the, the hands of Jesus and his, his uh, bleeding head. That could be true. But what's interesting in the first Passover is, is that none of the other plagues required something of God's people. At first, they sort of shared in the plagues. I mean, all the water was like blood. And I think they, they endured some of the stinky dying frogs and things like that. But as the plagues progressed, God started to make a distinction so that by the time the ninth plague came, there was darkness all over Egypt, but the Israelites were like an island in the sun. The darkness was not there. And here he makes a distinction, again, a big distinction, but he requires something of his people. He requires an act of trust. And in essence, when the father would sprinkle the lamb's blood on the doorpost. He in as much as saying I and my family are putting our trust in the word of God that has come to us through his servant Moses. That's where our stake is. We have no hope except for what we're doing with this blood. He didn't God didn't just say just shed the blood. He said display the blood. I want to see the blood on your doorposts. And so my word to you tonight is that there is a Passover coming. And the good news is that that blood has been shed. No other blood needs to be shed. It's finished. It is finished. But you cannot presume that just because his blood was shed that God is going to come and pass over you. You, there is something asked of us and what's asked of us is to put our trust in that blood, okay? And and build my whole life and hope around the fact that that blood was shed, and that I'm called to serve the One who came and sacrificially gave Himself for my life. It asks everything of me, you see. But I need to appropriate that blood by faith. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And, and here, here's where the faith comes. So I can say to you tonight, allegorically, is the blood of Jesus on the doorposts of your heart? Where is the blood? I used to tell my congregation that story of, and you've probably heard it a dozen times, Michael probably forgot he's, used the illustration and then he used it again. We always do that as preachers. Um, But, you know, those tightrope walkers who would go across these dangerous places on these tightrope lines. And someone did that at Niagara Falls in around 1860. And the crowds were gathered around and enamored with this and he went across and he, he came back with a wheelbarrow, you know, instead of the, you know, the pole, came back with a wheelbarrow and he says to the, the crowd, he says, do you believe that I can take another person in this wheelbarrow across the line here with the roaring falls and if you, you know, if you don't make it, you die do you believe I could do that? And they're like, oh yeah, the crowd cheers, you can do it. And so he said, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Yeah. So now, now that's faith, okay? That, that is, faith isn't just like, well, these are the things I know and I believe I think correctly about the gospel. Faith is getting into the wheelbarrow. It's scary. And, and, and saying that I, I'm placing all my trust, all my capital in the fact that God sent his son. Okay? When you die, the moment you die, if you're even aware of the moments before, you have nothing. You don't have your possessions. You might have family presence, which is a wonderful grace if God gives that to you. But when you die, all you have is the promise of God in which you have placed your trust. That's all you have at that moment you die. And so God calls us to put our faith and our trust in what he's done for us and to build our lives around that. Some, there may be here, uh, some doorposts that are empty because You've just become convinced that, you know, it's a a physical world, it's a natural world. We're here kind of by an amazing accident, but there's no accountability, and there's nothing sort of invisible beyond the physical world and molecules. And so there's no blood there because you're an agnostic or an atheist. There may be some doorposts tonight that are empty because... You don't believe it's really necessary. You're more like a universalist that, well, Jesus is going to save everybody. And, you know, there's a part of our hearts that wishes, like, I I want people to be saved. I I don't want to see anyone suffer those consequences. Jesus wept over what would happen to Jerusalem. He wasn't happy about it. Um, But maybe you believe that faith isn't necessary. This is what we call religious liberalism. That, you know, Jesus died, and so it's done. It's done. Hopefully you get to find out about it, and maybe some things change in your life. But in the end, it doesn't matter. There may be some uh, doorposts here tonight that are stained with blood. It's been sprinkled there, but it's a mixture of blood. You mix blood types. Not allowed to do that. Um... You believe that Jesus needed to die, but you also believe that you better live up to it and you better add your own blood, sweat, and tears. And the two of those together will be sufficient. Uh, In church history, they called that Pelagianism after a man named Pelagius. But It's sort of this sort of cooperative salvation. You know, Jesus did his part, I do mine. And, and I'm sorry, that's, that's not faith in what you, you... You don't believe you're dead enough. You don't believe you're that bad off. You need his blood alone. There's a Passover coming, and we don't know when it is coming, uh, but we know it is sometime. And when God comes, he wants to see that blood, and there's only one kind that he wants to see, and that's the blood of his Son that's been appropriated by faith in your heart, in your life, just his. Think of the joy of the disciples, (laughs) not on Good Friday, but on Easter, and the days after when Jesus had spoken to them, They had gone ahead and prepared the Last Supper. They had that meal with Christ. And then, horrors of horrors, literally. um, He's arrested and he's beaten, tried, convicted, and crucified on a cross. They killed their friend and leader. But in the days past, after that, they began to realize that he really was the lamb. That, that was the lamb we've needed all along. He gave up his life and he came and he's told us what all those Old Testament passages mean. And it's all about him. It's all about him. That's the joy that should fill our hearts tonight is a resurrection joy that Jesus lives and so shall I. It's the joy of the Lamb's blood that we all need. And so I can say to you as we close tonight the same thing that the Apostle John, or excuse me, John the Baptist said at the beginning of John's Gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, take these words, we ask, May they nourish our hearts. Um, May you give clarity to our minds because we can't come up with that on our own. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to show us, uh, to help us repent, to help us to cling to you in faith. Uh, We thank you for the Lord Jesus and for your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.